Hi, it's Brett Cowell, and this is the Total Life Complete podcast coming to you from Cafe Momentum. Today, I'm here with Chad Hauser, Executive Director and Chef at Cafe Momentum. Welcome, Chad. Hello, Brett. Hello, and it's thank you so much for making the time. I know you're one of the busiest people and hardworking people in Dallas, so <laughs> thanks for taking a bit of time to do this. Not a problem at all. I don't know what that means, busiest. <laughs> people say that all the time, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I think that means I just don't sleep. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I so since we since we've gone there so early, let's. Uh, I read a quote from you to say if I if I didn't have to sleep, that'd be great. Uh, that was a few years ago. Uh, How's that working out for you? Well, you know, it's funny. I've never liked sleep. I think as a teenager, I liked to sleep uh, late, but in my adult life, I've never liked sleep. I I, um, I don't like getting more than four hours a night, maybe five. I feel like I've wasted way too much time if I get more than that. I can relate to that a little bit. I, I think sometimes you've got so much on it, particularly if you're doing your own thing that you're passionate about, you just want to get up and get, get into it. So, Okay, the first question I ask all the guests on the show is how do you introduce yourself at a party when people ask who you are? <laughs> well, I, um, I used to um, just tell people I cook. Um, I've always... Um, I, I always I don't like uh, monikers that have a certain connotation, and I've always felt like chef um, had such kind of a, a fancy connotation to it, and I never thought of myself as fancy. So I would just tell people I cook, um, even when I was co-owner of Parigi. Uh, now, when people ask me, I just say, "Well, it's kind of a long story," because <laughs> I don't know how to condense it. Sometimes, uh, depending on the crowd, I'll just say, "Well, I." Currently, take kids out of jail and teach them to play with knives and fire. I just leave it at that. And then, depending on if I want to be a real smart aleck or not, I'll just walk away, or I'll explain to them what that and means. Drop the mic. <laughs> yeah. That's wonderful. So, so one of the things. So, we're sitting here in Cafe Momentum, so that might be a good place to start about things that you do out of your many hats that you wear. So, maybe explain to listeners um, who may not be from Dallas, may not be familiar with that, what Cafe Momentum is all about. Well, Cafe Momentum is. Um, um, consistently ranked as one of the top or, or most popular restaurants in Dallas. Um, we opened on January 29th, 2015. Um, but uh, what separates us from, well, any other restaurant in Dallas and or the U.S. is that our restaurant is, is a nonprofit. Um, it's a, it serves as a 12-month paid post-release internship for young men and young ladies that are exiting Dallas County juvenile detention facilities. So over the course of those 12 months, um, our, our, the young men and young ladies that participate in our program, uh, we refer to them as interns. Um, our interns work their way through all of the stations in the restaurant, everything from you know being a dishwasher to prep cook, line cook, busser, server, host, hostess. Um, we focus on life skill and social skill training while they're working their way through the different stations. Um, a little bit um, um, redundant, but that's you know how you turn. Uh, uh, that's how you create good habits. And and but we also have a, a case management team that works to build an ecosystem of support around the kids. Why that's important um, is you know I'll give you two examples. The, the juvenile justice industry term to describe the population that we work with is throwaway. Um, that, that simply means to be discarded. These are children that have been discarded since the day they're born by every facet of their life, right? Home, street, neighborhood, school, the government, you name it. And it's a scarlet letter that they wear on their chest. Um, Second example that reiterates that point, uh, we've worked with 297 kids since this restaurant opened. 62% of them are homeless at some point in their internship. Never mind the fact that if you're 15, 16 years old and you're homeless, that typically also means you've been abandoned. So you're 16 years old, um, and when you should be getting your driver's license and thinking about college, you're trying to figure out what floor you're going to sleep on every night. And that... Um, high level of dysfunction and, and instability is a recipe for disaster for anyone, uh, especially for someone that's, that, 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 as I mentioned, wears that as a scarlet letter on their chest and says, this is, this is who I'm supposed to be. So our case management team works to address those urgent needs like housing, healthcare, education, um, creating a baseline of stability, and then going on to kind of um, secondary um, or intermediate goals, things like getting them a bank account, financial literacy training classes, 
parenting classes. About 40% of the kids that we work with are parents. Um, most of them don't know what it means to be, especially our young men, don't know what it means to be a dad. They've never had a dad around, much less a parent. So we want to we want to continue to break cycles, and that's a great way to do it. All the way to as they're they're finishing up the internship, um, we're giving them uh, job interview skills, uh, resume writing skills, helping them write their resumes, and we're also um, putting them in contact with one of our employment partners so that they can apply an interview for a position that uh, focuses on their strengths and or interests. That's a wonderful um, overview because I think it, it's tempting to, for people to say, oh, look, you know, he's a, a, a well-known and awarded chef who started this restaurant here that's teaching ex-offenders to, to cook. But you've described a lot of stuff that happens. It's not just teaching <laughs> people how to, how, how to cook, is it? It's all of those other things. That are... Um even more important than teaching them how to cook. When we first started um, putting all of this together, you know, so many people said, well, these kids just need jobs. They just need jobs. And I thought, wow, man, that's like putting a Band-Aid on a waterfall. You know, a, a job is certainly one important component. Access to money is a very important component. But again, when your entire life is built around being a throwaway, um, you need a lot more than just work. And, and the mission of Cafe Momentum is to help these kids achieve their full potential, which is a far cry from just giving them a job. So what happens to the folks when they finish the program? I think you said there was almost 300 yeah. kids been through it. So the way that we design the program um, is a little bit um, different um, than I think it, how you would traditionally look at a program. And, and here's why. Um, we've worked with 297 kids. Now... If you want to look at a just a baseline, well, I'm going to stop myself. We've worked with 297 kids. 15 have graduated our program, gone through to completion. Uh, what that means is that 282 did not complete our program. Now, does that mean that 282 are failures because they didn't make it all the way through? No. There are several reasons that prove this. Number one is some of them have moved out of state. Some of them um, can't work because their probation officer says, no, I want you to focus on school or has you know, very restrictive curfews. Some of it's because their family won't let them work. There's all of these reasons. Some of it's because they want to go on to another job earlier and get paid. Some of it is because they mess up. Some of it is because they go back to jail. In fact, um, of the 297, 15.2% um, have ever gone back to, have gone back to jail. Um, Relative to the 48.3% uh, recidivism rate for juveniles across the state of Texas, um, that indicates that we've already created success, mm -hmm. right? Um, statistically speaking, half of our kids should have gone back to jail within 12 months and only 15% have ever gone back to jail at all. That indicates a first level of success. Um, another reason why we kind of revamped that programming as well is because life doesn't work in this like perfect linear pattern, right? And um, sometimes it takes us, each of us as individuals, um, different schedules, different times to progress. And when you look at the kids that come into our program, they don't all come in at the same level. Take education, for example. On average, our kids are two grade levels behind. But, but that spectrum spans from the extreme of having 18 year olds that come in here that that dropped out of high school in the or dropped out of school in the fifth grade and can't read or write all the way to the other extreme which is the occasional and i emphasize the word occasional uh, i can think of three out of 297 that are actually on grade level at their appropriate home high school um but the majority of them are every step in between because all of our kids come from various levels of trauma um, we're dealing with young women who have eight-month-old children whose father is their former pimp. Um, we're dealing with young men who were abandoned by both parents. Father's dead, and mom just abandoned them when they were 14 years old. Um, we're dealing with children who have had to listen to their mom's boyfriend raping them at night um, that have been beaten by the same boyfriend, that have had guns held to their head. We have a young man that's here right now that got shot six months ago walking home from school that literally walking home from school someone pulled up uh he was an innocent bystander to something that was going on but he's the one that got shot um so they don't all start at the same level 
Some start way, way, way down low. Some start a little bit higher. Some start. So just, just because some of them finish at a higher level than others, those that finish at a higher level than others doesn't, doesn't mean that they've made the significant progress that others have. So we really want to um, emphasize and celebrate that throughout the program because success breeds success. So when you, and that's why we're called Momentum. So when you begin that momentum of success, we know that when they leave here, they'll continue building success in their own timeline, um, but they'll do it. So we built the program designed to measure the, the different um, variables in which we can prove that they will be successful. For example, uh, when an intern first starts the internship, they, they're considered tier one. Tier one interns make $9 an hour. While they're tier one, their case manager is going to work with them um, to get them back in school. Um, we have a partnership with Parkland Hospital here in Dallas, which is our county hospital, so that all of our interns uh, and their families not only have access to free health care, but they have access to an actual primary care physician. So as part of tier one, our interns have to go get a wellness check, a physical uh, they have to go get a vision exam, and they have to go get a dental exam. They have to, as I mentioned, get re-enrolled in school, and we help them with our educational partners to do that, and or be taking tutorial classes to get their GED. Now, these are all boxes that the kids are checking off um, in order to move from Tier 1 to Tier 2. Tier 2, the incentive now is that they make $10 an hour. So they make a dollar more an hour, uh, but with Tier 2, comes new variables, new or new tasks, new things that new boxes that they have to check off in order to move to tier three. When they move to tier three, they make eleven dollars an hour. Uh, at tier three, though, we stop giving them bus passes. We stop providing free transportation for them. They have to get to work on their own, and they have to show up for work on time, eighty percent of the time, before they can move to tier four. In tier four, they make $12 an hour. They get assigned, they get assigned a mentor and they begin an externship with one of our employment partners. Now, um, all of that is literally designed to create these extrinsic motivators that lead to intrinsic habits. But with it also comes data. And in that data, we know, I know for a fact that the median income of a 25-year-old high school dropout in this country is under $10,000 a year. I know that my kids, when they make ten, when they hit tier two and they're making $10 an hour, they're getting paid over $20,000 a year working 40 hours a week. That is double what a dropout would make. But by knowing that we've got them back in school and that they're on track to graduate or have some type of, uh, whether it's a high school diploma or GED, we know that statistically through data that they're already on track to make more than that 25-year-old high school dropout. So we know that's already one degree of success. We also know just by tracking recidivism, there's another degree of success. We can build on those successes and celebrate them, which is important when you're dealing with a young person who has no self-esteem and no self-confidence because they've been told they're a throwaway their entire life. I'm kind of, again, the simplistic principles to say, okay, you run a restaurant, you've got kind of a busy business mindset and then you're going to apply that to a social problem be a social entrepreneur or whatever however you want to label it again that's very simplistic as well because what you've described i'm not sure whether you knew all of everything you've described on day one but it sounds like it's been a lot a, a big learning curve and adaptation uh big time big time what's been the most surprising thing i guess coming into it and we'll talk about how this started and where the idea um came from uh, in a second but what's been surprising so far to to get to this point I think that there's been two really big surprises for me. Uh, number one is, you know, um, prior to the restaurant opening for about three and a half years, we did these monthly pop-up dinners to raise money and raise awareness. Um, part of the reason for doing those pop-up dinners was also to break through stereotypes that people had about our kids. Um, when, when I first started going around asking people for money to, to help build Cafe Momentum, you know, I was told every reason why we would fail. I was told, uh, I, I was asked, what are you going to do when those kids stab each other in the kitchen? Uh, told those kids don't want to work, they just want to check. Uh, those kids have never been to a nice restaurant. Those kids can't cook your food. Those 
every um, racial and cultural stereotype, uh, horrible negative stereotype that you could possibly imagine. So the pop-up dinners really help to alleviate a lot of those stereotypes. Um, and, and it's been helpful, but then you open the restaurant and I still see this restaurant's two and a half years old. Uh, I've been cooking for 20 years. I've never worked in a place where I've had my employees accused of stealing purses, cell phones, wallets, et cetera, more than in this restaurant. We have 17 cameras in this restaurant and um, people mention the cameras all the time and I say, yeah, it's actually to prove my kid's innocence um, and your idiocy than it is to catch them doing anything wrong because out of the probably 45 times that someone has said, my phone's missing, my wallet's missing, my, whatever the case is, we review the cameras and the people have walked out with, I mean, in their hand, the cell phone in their hand. I had a woman one time that told me that um, she was adamant that she had stuck her wallet on the table and that somebody stole it. Um, I reviewed the tapes. I asked the woman to come into the office. I said, may I please look in your purse? And I pulled her wallet out of a side pocket. Uh, another woman told the manager that he needed to dig through the trash because she was convinced that one of our interns had stolen her purse, taken the cash out, and thrown her purse away. Uh, upon reviewing the tapes, the woman got up from the table with her purse around her, her, her shoulder and body uh, and walked out of the restaurant. Um, she didn't even apologize. So um, to continue to witness these stereotypes has been just a surprise because I'm thinking like, wow, you know, we're, we're two and a half years old. We've gotten all these wonderful accolades for the restaurant. Like, when are you going to give these kids credit? I think the second thing is, you know, we did the pop-ups for three and a half years and I've been working with the kids and um, learning as much as I possibly could. And, um, but there's a difference when you're around somebody once a month and you're around somebody uh, five, six times a week. Um, they can't hide a lot of things and they also build a certain level of trust where they, they divulge a lot of things that they haven't in the past. I never realized um, the intense depravity of resources that these kids come from. Um, it's, it's sometimes overwhelming. I mean, they can't even, there are 40 plus uh, neighborhoods in Dallas that are federally recognized as food deserts, which simply means that the individuals living in those neighborhoods have no access to a grocery store. I heard a friend recently say it's not a food desert, it's a resource desert. Because with a grocery store comes a lot of other things, prescription drugs, um, you know, or, or basic medicine, non-prescription medicine, uh, feminine hygiene products, soap deodorant um even even the infrastructure of other businesses that build around a grocery store absent 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 so they come from a place just by the virtue of the neighborhood they were born in and raised in they already have a, an absence of just basic basic survival resources um and then you can just continue to go on for there it's, it, it it becomes a bit overwhelming and it was very surprising to me why this cause and why now and why at the point a couple of years ago that you decided to take this up? Um, it's a great question. Um, and um, it honestly started, you know, um, I went to culinary school, uh, El Centro College here in Dallas with one goal. I wanted to be an executive chef and I wanted to own a restaurant. And in 2007, I had... Um, the very good fortune uh, to buy into Parigi Restaurant, which was an already, excuse me, an already wonderful, successful restaurant. Um, and I had the absolute good fortune that Janice Provo gave me the opportunity to be her business partner. Um, and so I sold my house, took all the equity out of it, took out a loan um, that she financed and um, bought into Parigi. Of course, that was um, the beginning of the second worst recession that this country's ever seen. And I remember thinking to myself, what have you done? I mean, you've, you bet everything on this, you know? Um, I'm very proud to report that um, I actually helped to grow the business 38% in my first year of ownership while other restaurants were closing um, and or barely getting by. We actually grew the business, and uh, I, about a year into it, I was nominated by D Magazine as Best Up-and-Coming Chef in Dallas. Subsequently, was nominated as Best Chef in Dallas twice after that. Um, everything was 
trajecting up and and it was awesome you know i mean it felt good i, I was on tv i got to be on tv i got to be my picture in a magazine I, it was wonderful um almost one year to the day that i officially became a partner at parigi um i had an opportunity to teach eight young men in juvenile detention how to make ice cream uh, for an ice cream competition at the dallas farmers market and i the moment i met these eight young men i realized that i had stereotyped them the way they walk, the way they talk, um, that kind of gangsta thug stereotype. And I realized I was wrong because all eight of these young men looked me in the eye when they spoke and all eight called me sir. Now, as I mentioned earlier, been cooking 20 years. And in 20 years, I've been called a lot of names and a lot of kitchens and a lot of languages. Uh, no kitchen, no language, no anything was it ever sir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and and so, you know, we, 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 these kids were so eager to learn and so enthusiastic to do something that that they could be proud of and for every single one of them you could tell that was a first time feeling first time in their lives in 15 16 17 year old lives where they could do something and look themselves in the mirror pat themselves on the back and say i did this we made ice cream um now when i tell you that raspberry was a flavor of candy they had never seen or tasted a fresh raspberry then you can imagine what was going through their minds when I had them taste fresh tarragon? Uh, they thought I was making them eat grass. And, well, it's licorice favorite grass, guys. Come on. Um, we made ice cream. Two days later, these, these eight young men were bussed down to the Dallas Farmer's Market, and they handed out their samples of the ice creams that they had made alongside college culinary students. And they were more proud than the, than the college students. The college students had on their, their black and white checkered chef pants, their chef coats, their chef hats. They were very professional. And these eight young men and their khaki pants and, and tattered white t-shirts, you would have thought that they were wearing crisp, clean chef coats themselves. They were so proud, so charismatic. And at the end of the competition, one of the young men won the whole thing. And when he won, he came running up to me, and I can see it today just as vivid as it was that day. He, he bends his knees and cocks his arms, gets in my face and screams at the top of his lungs, Sir, I just love to cook. And I bent my knees and cocked my arms and I screamed right back in his face, Sir, me too. And it was like this dual epiphany. <laughs> um, he said, I just love to make food and give it to people and put a smile on their face. And I remember thinking to myself, um, how dare you stereotype this sweet kid? I also remember thinking to myself, you know, he could have said, I like to make food and make money and help my mom pay the water bill. And there's, there's noble. Could have said, I, I like to make food. I want to make money and own a, a Tesla. So be it. Hard work, determination, success. Uh, but he said, I just love to make food and give it to people and put a smile on their face. And uh, it touched me because I, I grew up, um, I grew up in around Dallas Um and, uh, you know, my grandfather, uh, for 30 plus years, drove a bread truck for Mrs. Baird's bakery. When my mom was a little girl, uh, he would wake her up at, you know, three thirty, four o'clock in the morning and she would ride with him and he would drop her off at the farmer's market and she'd sell peaches and cucumbers that his sisters, my, my her aunts, my great aunts, um, had grown in East Texas trying to make enough money to buy a hamburger. Um, and, um, so when I was born and when I was a kid, that Southern heritage uh, included Sunday suppers at my grandparents' house. So on Sundays, uh, every member of my family, my mom is one of five siblings, so all of my aunts and uncles, my cousins, my mom, my dad, me, my grandparents, everyone gathered at my grandparents' house and, and had Sunday supper. And so food always meant a lot more to me than eating. Food was about family. It was about love. It was about camaraderie. Uh, it was about nurturing your soul, not just your belly. So to hear him say, I just love to make food and give it to people and put a smile on their face, personified every reason why I loved to cook. Uh, and and, and then, then he says, um, when I get out, I'm going to get a job in a restaurant. And I thought, oh, this is unbelievable. This is the most inspiring moment I've ever had in my entire life. And he said, sir, where do you think I should work? Wendy's or Chili's? And I told him um, professionally, of course, that uh, he should work wherever hires him first. And I drove home that day and I, I knew 
several things. Number one is um, I was never going to see him again. He He's a juvenile under the custody of the Dallas County Juvenile Department. They're not going to give his personal information out to a stranger. Uh, number two is I knew um, that the odds of him making it to a Wendy's or Chili's uh, because of systemic barriers, uh, transportational barriers, whatever you name it, right? Um, the odds were stacked against him that he would even make it there. And, and then I, I realized, you know, at the end of the day, he's going to go right back to the same house, same street, same neighborhood, same school, same everything, as I mentioned before, that's led him right on a path to jail. And I remember thinking to myself, it's not fair. It's not fair. Because when I was born, I didn't choose the color of my skin. I didn't choose the socioeconomic class of my parents. I didn't choose the the neighborhood that I was going to grow up in, the suburb that I, the school system, the, you name it. I didn't, those weren't choices that I made. It was just handed to me. Same thing with him. And what makes me better than him? Nothing, absolutely nothing, but literally pure luck that was not deserved by me or by him. And I thought it's not fair. It's not fair. He deserves every chance that I was ever given, and he would probably actually do a better job with them because he wouldn't take it for granted. And um, I thought, you know, somebody's got to do something about this. And I then I thought, why are you keep saying somebody's got to do something? If you're not willing to step up, then you need to shut up because you're a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. It's not everyone else's responsibility to do something that you think needs to be done. Either do it or be quiet. And that was it for me. That was it. I decided that day I was going to do something. I had no idea what it was. Um, I mean, z- zero clue. Um, I just knew one thing. Whatever I did wasn't about me. It was about him. It was about them. It was about them looking themselves in the mirror at night and saying, I did it. I'm great. I believe in me. It was not about me. And so that's when I set off to figure out what that was. Mm -hmm. That's a powerful story. And I'm glad it wasn't uh, a Hollywood, you know, sort of situation where you inspired somebody to go off and cook. And then, you know, there's a montage and then that person's opening (laughs) 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 opening up a restaurant and winning a Michelin star or whatever like that. What's actually happened is, is... a lot more real and a lot more powerful than a Hollywood movie probably, which is actually you've built that now and what you envisaged or what you were um, compelled to do on that day has become reality and we're sitting here right now a number of years later. It's, it was, you know, it's funny, uh, a, a friend of mine taught me a very important lesson a long time ago, which is there are no shortcuts in life, but boy, Hollywood sure does present them, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> you just could have the right music there and just good, good editing. You talked about the significance of food in the household when you were growing up and then actually getting to, to, to learn at, um, at El Centro. Did you go straight from point A to point B there or did you also want to be an astronaut or do something else? How, how did you actually <laughs> solidify that desire um, to, to cook? I grew up um, from elementary school through high school wanting to be a sportscaster. Mm-hmm. Um, for anyone that's in that is ever stepped foot in Dallas, um, the name Dale Hansen rings a bell. When I was in eighth grade, I wrote a letter to Dale Hansen asking him if I could shadow him for a career investigation class that I was taking. And I did. I followed Dale Hansen around for a day. Uh, my running joke with that is there's there's two significant moments in that day. Number one of which was uh, as I waited in the lobby of the WFAA studios for Dale to show up, show up for work, uh, a gentleman by the name of Walter Cronkite walked out into the lobby and I actually got to meet Walter Cronkite. Wow. Um, the other moment of significance was that um, Dale told my mom that if if she would let me stay for the 10, 10 o'clock newscast, that he would take me to dinner at Hooters after the 6 o'clock newscast. Um, my mom picked me up at 6.32. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, I got to tell that jo- uh, story to Dale recently, so it was, it was pretty, pretty, pretty vindicating. Um, but uh, when I got to college, believe it or not, I took a cl- an English literature class and became... Um, infatuated with the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas. Uh, Under Milkwood was was my thing, man. Uh, so I told my parents that I was going to, uh, well, 
for me, growing up in my household, college was not optional. Um, going was not optional and graduating was not optional. And so I sat down with my parents and said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get a degree in English literature. And then um, when I graduate, I'm going to try cooking because I, I really enjoy it. And, and my dad of all people, uh, which I say that because if you knew my dad, you knew who, how, uh, what a very practical baby boomer he is. Um, so he of all people went against everything that he had ever pushed on me my entire life and said, well, then why don't you just go to culinary school? Follow your passion. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, like my dad's telling me to follow my passion. Forget everything that he's ever told me about. You have to go to college. You have to get a degree. You have to get a job. Follow your passion. So I went to culinary school at El Centro and it was about 12 years later um, that I had a conversation with my dad. I said, you know, I said, for all this time, I thought, wow, man, you, you really, um, you really pushed me to, to follow my passion and it was so inspiring to me and motivating and I said, but you're really thinking what the hell is he gonna do with a degree in English literature? And my my dad just smiled and patted me on the shoulder and he said, but you love what you do, son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, th- touche. Yeah, the, the, there is something there. I think there's actually a negotiation technique at work there that you always pick. It's Maybe it's called the Goldilocks principle. You yes. always pick two extremes and and then, uh, or I could be a chef. Okay, yeah. No. <laughs> Wait, you mean like, my, uh, here's my dad's mind is, uh, uh, you know, a degree in English literature, what does that even mean? Uh, what does that mean? More school, more, you know, whatever. And, and let's be fair, man. I, I wanted to get a degree in English literature because I think I thought girls would think it was cool you know come on um but uh i think he realized that everybody will always eat so i'll always have a job and that's the practical side of him so it wasn't this romantic ideal it was him being true to form cook job always done (laughs) let's talk a little bit more about being a chef and maybe the what's happened in in food and food reality tv and celebrity chefs and the art of all of this so let's get into that but to start off with what makes a good chef um honestly work ethic and and i know that that sounds really silly but um i have a friend of mine who is very successful owning a bunch of restaurants and i was talking to him about someone once and um i mentioned you know that um for this person to continue to excel, that he was going to need to to work more, and he needed to decide what where his priorities were in life. If he wanted to take the next step, go to the next level, uh, bigger title, more money, more prestige, and so forth, he was going to have to be willing to sacrifice certain things uh, in order to do that. And was he willing to do it? And there's no right or wrong answer to it, but you just have to be honest with yourself. Um, the same guy said that he. he uh, had somebody um, do a exit interview uh, from one of his kitchens, and the guy said, "What you know? What do I need to do to to take my career to the next level?" And he said, "About thirty more hours a week." <laughs> <laughs> and it's true, um, I, you know. Um, I'm proud of how I came up, and I'm proud of I, there were no shortcuts. I started out, my very first job was measuring ingredients for cookie doughs because I was not trusted to actually use a mixer. And so I sat for eight, 10 hours a day just cracking eggs and measuring flour and sugar and butter and vanilla. And um, uh, when I was done with that, they would stick me in the dish pit with a a young uh, immigrant named Oscar who uh, was a really fun, great guy. But, uh, you know, Oscar, um, my favorite story about Oscar is he he used to bite... uh, beer caps off with his teeth and spit them at me um and one day he looked at me and he squinted his eyes and he got real serious he said chad kiss your ass and i just looked right back at him i said well with all due respect oscar i think i'd rather kiss my own ass than yours (laughs) he got so frustrated with me but um that you know there is no more important position in any restaurant than the dishwasher. Um, how important is it? Um, Rene Redzepi, who's arguably the most famous chef in the world, just gave a piece of ownership in his restaurant to his dishwasher. And um, it's true. Why is that? 
because a dishwasher makes or breaks anything that happens in the restaurant. Uh, if a dishwasher is slow getting plates out, then the kitchen can't plate. If they're slow getting silverware out, then the busters can't reset. If they're slow getting, they can affect everyone um, and everyone comes in contact with them. Every person in the restaurant comes in contact with the dishwasher. And so um, it's why uh, the M crowd, which here in Dallas owns me casino taco diner, they pay their dishwashers more than line cooks pay their dishwashers $11 an hour. Line cooks start at 10. Uh, it is the most important job in the restaurant. It also teaches you the most uh, skills in order to be successful in a restaurant organization, time management, people management, um, all the social skills all combined in one position. And so, um, to me, I, I think, um, well, I'll give you a great stat, and I think this summarizes everything. Uh, in the United States of America, 95% of all restaurant, restaurant managers started off as a dishwasher. 85% of all restaurant owners started off as a dishwasher. That's, that's a big statement. Can every good chef be a good restaurateur as well? No. Um, I mean, um, just, just basic physiology tells you that if you're really creative, you're not very book smart or vice versa. Right. Um, so it, it is very difficult. I also think in today's day and age, um, if you just look around the Dallas culture, look at people like Brian Lusher at the grape, look at Nick Badavinas, uh, and the success that he's had with all of his restaurants. Um, Jack Perkins at Maple and Motor and then the Slow Bone and now he's opening Mockingbird Diner. And um, there's a common theme that runs amongst all of them. There's confidence, but not an ego, right? Mm. Um, and they all um, have worked their way up in the restaurants so that they all know um, how a restaurant operates and how a restaurant works. So they are smart. If you look at all of them as well, they've all also hired smart people to work alongside them and they give them the opportunity to do their jobs. Look at, you know, Brian at the grape. I mean, he's worked with Sarah Chastain and Danielle McPherson and really incredible people because his ego didn't say it's all about me. His ego was, his confidence was I can do my thing. She can do hers and together we can make something even better. And I think that that's important. A lot of times today you see a lot of young people coming up and they want to skip a couple of those steps. Um, those steps are valuable because they teach you how to be successful later on in life. Does what, uh, what the guests, what the customers want, uh, has that changed in this kind of, uh, I'm going to say, throw a number of things out there, you know, the celebrity chefs and food channel and cook your own and ratings uh, apps and all of that sort of stuff is the way that people engaging and what they're expecting and what they makes them satisfied. Has that changed in the oh, 20 years ago? Um, um, Dallas, if you, I mean, just look at the way that grocery stores have changed in the last 20 years in, in Dallas uh, and, and, you know, across the country. I mean, our access to ingredients and, and there's multiple factors that play into that. I mean, number one is, is the little access to get them, but then, you know, the, the food network played a huge um, and pivotal role in that PBS cooking series, food magazines, Martha Stewart, all of these things play into um, creating this enthusiasm and excitement. I want to, I want to try these ingredients. I want to try it. And now my grocery store has them. Now I can try them. Um, then you fast forward a little bit to the world of blogs. Um, and anyone that could write a blog was all of a sudden a food expert. Um, some still think they are. Then you have Yelp, um, which now means that I'm not only a food expert, but I'm a critic, <laughs> you know, I've, I, I, I rival Leslie Brenner, uh, 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 and, and, you know, for, forget the fact that this is a woman who for 20 plus years has honed a craft and a skill and went to school and was educated and gone to conferences and kept up and all this stuff. I have a Yelp account. I can make a determination. Dang it. Um, so, yes, it is continuously and constantly uh, evolved. Um, and I think but I think fundamentally, uh, as a chef, you ask yourself the same uh, genuine and egoless question. Did they not like it because of me or because of them? And if you can answer that question honestly and fairly, then you can learn 
that either they're an asshole or <laughs> that, you know, hey, I can do better next time. And I will. I think that's a great life lesson as well. Typically at this point in the show, we talk a little bit about Dallas and we've started talking a little bit about Dallas now already. Um, just to help help me explain, as not, I'm not a Dallas side, although I've been here four years and might be people listening around the world. What's, what's this place of Dallas all about beyond the Cowboys and, and other things, the TV show? Well, see, I would have never guessed that because to me, you distinctly have an East Dallas accent. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, um, I've heard people refer to uh, Dallas as the L.A. of the South, and I, I think a lot of that is attributed to the, the Dallas TV show and, and, and so forth. And, and we are still very much an oil and gas um, uh, culture or, or, or community. Um, but we've diversified ourselves so much, uh, fortunately, over the last several decades. I mean, look at Toyota just moved here uh, in the past year. Um, um, Ernst & Young has a big presence here. Uh, a lot of big companies, are, AT&T is headquartered here. And, and so uh, what I do love about Dallas is that uh, I think that it truly is a melting pot. I mean, there's a lot of cultures represented in Dallas. I know I have a friend that is a, 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 an English teacher at Conrad High School in Dallas Independent School District. And I think that there's like 80 something languages spoken in his school, 90% of them are refugees. Um, so it is a wonderful melting pot. So there's a, a great, um, what I don't think people realize is there's a lot of wonderful immigrant communities where you can get authentic foods around Dallas um, and, and authentic to the, you know, people look at Chinese food as Chinese food, but you know, there's like 17 different varieties of Chinese food and all of them are actually represented if you know where to go and find them in the communities. Uh, same with Middle Eastern food, um, Latin food, etc. You know, there's, it, it's, 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 it's pretty awesome. And I, and I, I love that. I also think that what we're seeing in Dallas right now um, is a kind of a, for lack of better terms, transition. You know, we, we have um, we have 18 billionaires in Dallas, 18 billionaires in Dallas. Uh, that doesn't include half billionaires or quarter billionaires or hundred millionaires or which I would think that number is probably pretty exorbitant. Um, all of those individuals have uh, what I think we're the the world is watching right now after Hurricane Harvey, which is Texas Pride. Mm -hmm. um, and and I saw a journalist uh, based in Austin that's not from here wrote a, a really beautiful little vignette um, after uh, Harvey um, ran its course, which was uh, about the Texas spirit. And how it's different than any other place he's ever been. Any other place, you know, that it doesn't matter if you're from Southeast Texas or the Panhandle, um, we take care of each other. And um, that spirit um, puts a glorified potato peeler, such as myself, in the same room as a billionaire who says, "I'm going to write you a check because I, I believe you can do something." And then we're sitting in Cafe Momentum, um, and I think that's pretty unique. I don't think that that happens um, often at all anywhere else. I think that's one of the, I, I refer to Dallas as the biggest small town in America because it is. There's always, a, there's a degree of separation between you and anybody, whether it be Troy Aikman and Emmett Smith or whether it be um, my next door neighbor's great aunt. Like, there's only one degree of separation between me and that woman. Um, and I think that that creates this unique circumstance where where you're seeing this incredible energy in our city right now. Um, there's a there's a can do attitude. Uh, nobody's asking why. People are saying why not. Um, in in light of Hurricane Harvey, I got a phone call from Amazon saying we have 6,200 hamburgers. Um, would you be interested in like cooking them and raising money for hurricane relief funds and all this stuff? And within 24 hours. I had seven other organizations pitching in, um, working through everything from permitting and logistics and um, rentals of equipment um, to excess supplies, to manpower, to you name it, uh, within 24 hours. And we're going to do it this Friday. And... Um, where else does that happen? I've been very surprised in the last week, pleasantly surprised that uh, people are not sitting around saying, 
should I do something? And they're not even sitting around saying, uh, you know, what should I do? They're sitting around saying, am I doing enough? <laughs> and, and people are just literally donating multiple times, going and trying to help out and kind of having, wondering what else we can do. I, I think you could summarize it really quickly in just one quick point. When Hurricane Harvey was hitting the Southeast Texas, people were going into that area. They weren't waiting for it to leave. They weren't waiting for it to be safe. They weren't waiting for an opportune time. They were going in amidst all the chaos because people needed help. Let's talk a little bit about um, current projects and anything else that you want the listeners to hear about that's happening just right now, things you're working on, things happening at Cafe Momentum or elsewhere. Well, um, one of the things um, that we uh, take a lot of pride in at Cafe Momentum is, is really focusing on the kids because it's about them and it's about their needs and it's about what's ultimately going to help them achieve their full potential in life. And and through that, we did a, a um, we worked, we collaborated with a, a group of, of grad students at, at SMU uh, under the guidance of um, Dr. Kate Canales uh, and her Maddie program. Um, focused on, uh, and this particular grad class focuses on human design. So about a, a year and a half or so ago, maybe two years ago, goodness, um, the class came in and spent an entire year. I tasked them with focusing on housing. I mentioned 62% of our kids are homeless. And they did this year-long immersive study on housing and how it applied to our kids through the lens of human design, Right. And um, it was incredible. I mean, they worked alongside our kids for days on end. They went home with them. They interviewed them. They did blind surveys with them. They interviewed our staff. They compare and contrasted results as they went along to see where there was consistencies. They all these things. It was it was it was unbelievable. One of the things that they said at the end of it was, is it pertains to housing. We have so many housing partners. We should focus on strengthening those partnerships. If we truly want to solve housing issues and stability and so forth for the interns, we need to build, we need to focus on increasing our hours of impact or hours of influence. Uh, and their suggestion was building this kind of like a, like a case management hub, a community center for our kids to go to where um, we could provide access to these resources around the clock um, and, and enhance resources, right? Pick an education partner and bring them into that community center and our kids can go to school right there. Um, don't run our kids around town going to the different Parkland clinics, have Parkland come to the community center, our kids can come in and take those sort of things. I'm very excited that after uh, about a year and a half of um, herding cats and trying to put all this together, I, I think we'll have a lease signed um, and start construction within the next several months. And, and then we'll, we'll uh, by the beginning of 2018, we'll have this community center, which will allow us to increase our hours of influence with our kids from on some days, 8 a.m. until 11 o'clock when they leave the restaurant. And I, I think we're going to see... Um, a, a really um, dramatic results. And, and I'm really excited about that. We're focusing on that. We're always focusing on different ways to, um, uh, you know, increase revenue, increase exposure, increase opportunities for our kids to work. Um, so we've been doing some fun things like partnering with the Ruthie's food truck um, and, and having our kids work on their food truck and designing some of the menu items to all the way to our friends at Better Block just built us a, a cute little kiosk um, that looks like an old trailer park trailer made out of plywood. I, I, I affectionately refer to it as the world's first pedestrian food trailer. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we, 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 we built that and um, took it out this past week and did these little brown bag lunches and sold out every single day. And, and now we're looking at turning that into a, a possible... Um, entrepreneurial activity for our interns where they could build a little micro business and go out and learn uh, how business truly works and, and, and plant seeds about, you know, um, you need hard work, you need a lot of effort, you need to be smart and you got to have luck to make business successful. So we're excited about all of these projects um, coming in. And of course, ultimately the goal is um, to continue to, to scale and build more and more cafe momentums. I, I will always cautiously uh, preach uh, quality over quantity because it's about really truly affecting lives and not just uh, building ego. But um, my running joke is that I want to build more cafe momentums than Starbucks. I, I had the good fortune to meet Howard Schultz um, a couple of months back. He came in the restaurant and had dinner and um, 
so I did my research, um, further research. And uh, when I said that, I thought that, you know, there's a couple thousand Starbucks. I didn't realize that a couple thousand is actually 26,000. So I've got some catching up to do. <laughs> You've got plenty of time anyway. Maybe you guys should get together and have a, some sort of hybrid. The last thing is, because I'm, again, conscious of your time here, you've got a restaurant to run, I can hear them. Um, it's just about life lessons, you know, I mean, and any other messages you want to leave with the listeners, maybe thinking about their own lives, wanting to uh, contribute more, have more passion in their life, do something different, get out of a rut, whatever it happens to be. What, uh, what have you learned that um, you'd like to pass on to others? You know, I'm nobody special. Um, and um, if I can build a cafe minimum, then anybody can do anything that they want. If you're passionate about something, go for it. Um, because... You know, if a glorified potato peeler like me can open a restaurant and work with all of these kids and, and accomplish what we've been able to accomplish, then anybody can follow their passion and 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 succeed. So I would just encourage people, you know, follow your passion. Don't don't listen to the detractors and and just keep pushing forward. If you do listen to the detractors, then maybe that's not really your passion. Just one other thing: how can people get involved? You know, who may not be here. You're a charity in addition to a restaurant should you know people can't make it to dallas which they should to eat here how can they get involved well you know it's funny um when i first started to tell people i want to open a non-profit restaurant people would say well aren't all restaurants non-profit <laughs> <laughs> uh, the answer is yes um no uh we are a non-profit restaurant we are a non-profit um the the restaurant operates and, and we, we we run it as as efficiently as we we humanly can just like any other business would be run um but because of the the ecosystem that we're building around these kids because of the resources that we're surrounding them with and providing them with uh, because of the training we do uh, the restaurant does not cover those costs and so uh, we do need donations we need people to donate uh, i you know a dollar five dollars a million dollars whatever you want uh, uh we always we love to have donations um and we love to have people coming in the restaurant um, the, the busier we are, the, the less money we have to fundraise, you know? Um, and, and, and because, um, you know, we can do all the work we want with the kids. We can provide all the resources we want, but what truly makes a change and what truly makes a difference in their lives is that, uh, during dinner service, these kids are surrounded, um, in a dining room of people who are eating and having a wonderful meal. And by, doing something as simple as having a wonderful meal in our restaurant you as a guest are affecting change you're sending a message directly to these young men and young women who've been deemed throwaway that they matter and that you believe in them and that does two things number one is it makes them start thinking about themselves and beginning to believe in themselves number two is it teaches them that that they're not a citizen of their neighborhood that they're a citizen of dallas that they're a citizen of something bigger than their neighborhood. And that is probably the single most empowering act that we can provide for these kids. So donate, come eat, and um, spread the word. Chad Hauser, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, sir. To get the transcript and show notes from today's show and to sign up to the mailing list, go to www.totallifecomplete.com. <laughs>